This is the Liberty and Law Podcast, where practicing lawyer and legal scholar Jeff Teichert offers unique insight into the relationship between law and liberty in history, politics, and American life. If you have a passion for liberty, you are in the right place. Hello, liberty lovers. This is Jeff Teichert with another edition of the Liberty and Law Podcast. And today I want to talk about appeals. Uh, we've got had the George Floyd murder trial recently where Officer Chauvin was uh, convicted on all counts and people are already talking about the appeals. And it's occurred to me that a lot of Americans don't know what an appeal is and why it matters. Uh, I think also there's a misconception that it's a second bite at the apple or a- another opportunity to tell your story and have sort of a retrial of a case. And so I want to to clear that up a little bit. So what an appeal is, is a review by a higher court of whether the lower court, the trial court, applied the law correctly. Uh, Typically, this is by a court of appeals uh, at a state level or on the federal level. Uh, and, and typically, if you lose at the Court of Appeals, you go up to the Supreme Court. Uh, in Utah, the Constitution is such that you apply for review by the Supreme Court, and if they take your case, you go there. If they don't, it's kicked down to the Court of Appeals, and then you can appeal to the Supreme Court again if you lose there. So how is this different <clears throat> from an ordinary trial? Well, generally, uh, at a court of appeals, you'll have a three-judge panel. And at a Supreme Court, you may have more. In Utah, there are five justices. Of course, the federal Supreme Court has nine, and uh, different states have different systems. But we're looking at, most often, where the lower court went wrong in applying the law. And so that's a very important uh, distinction. The tri- at the trial level, you're dealing with a lot of findings of fact. You're almost, uh, being a trial lawyer, and, and I have done a lot of trials as well as a lot of appeals, uh, being a trial lawyer, you're almost like a detective. You are digging into the evidence, the documents, the pictures, whatever whatever else comes in. You're also dealing with interviewing lots of witnesses, maybe deposing them, giving a dep- formal deposition where they testify prior to, prior to trial under oath. So you have an idea what they're going to say if they're called as witnesses at trial. And you're very much focused on what can I prove? And so that's uh, particularly important uh, distinction to understand. At the trial level, you're focused a lot on the facts, and the trial judge is going to apply the law to those facts uh, in a number of different ways. I want to suggest to you that factual appeals, when you're appealing the findings of fact made by the lower court or the jury, it is very difficult to get that overturned. I'm going to read you something, and because we were talking about the George Floyd trial, uh, 
we'll look at a Minnesota Supreme Court case called State versus Griffin. And the Supreme Court in that case wrote, when evaluating the sufficiency of the evidence, appellate courts carefully examine the record to determine whether the facts and the legitimate inferences drawn from them would permit the jury to reasonably conclude that the defendant was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of the offense of which he was convicted. The evidence must be viewed in the light most favorable to the verdict, and it must be assumed that the fact finder disbelieved any evidence that conflicted with the verdict. The verdict will not be overturned if the fact finder, upon application of the presumption of innocence and the state's burden of proving an offense beyond a reasonable doubt, could reasonably have found the defendant guilty of the charged offense. Okay, that is a Minnesota case. It is only applicable in Minnesota, but it is fairly typical of what you will see um, in terms of appellate courts setting forth the legal standards uh, for overturning factual findings on appeal. And I can tell you it doesn't happen very often. In fact, I've been practicing law for more than 25 years and I don't believe I've ever seen it. So when we're talking about uh, appeals of the legal rulings, this would be something like uh, in a criminal case, uh, incorrect jury instruction. And it could mean in a, in a civil case that the court applied the wrong legal standard or misapplied the legal standard. It could be that the court applied the rules of evidence in a way that was incorrect on the law and that evidence came in that should not have been allowed to and that that evidence affected the outcome. It could also be that the court uh, in, uh, found certain facts but misapplied the Constitution or the law to those facts, that <clears throat> the court used an incorrect legal test for those facts. The legal standard and tests, um, the interpretation of the law that is given by the appellate courts, once they rule on a legal issue and say, okay, this is what this particular language in this law or in the Constitution means as applied to this case, that decision will be written in an opinion and the court will explain why it reached the decision it did. And it is supposed to be the real reasons why. And that's that opinion and all the analysis in it is viewed as precedent to be applied in similar cases in the future. All right, that is called stare decisis. Uh, stare decisis is Latin and it means let the decision stand. And if you think about why that is, uh, if, if the law is applied in a particular case and the court 
has gone through a process of legal reasoning to apply that law that way, it creates expectations in the public, in the business community, uh, among other people that this is what the law means. And we don't want to disturb that. We want to apply the law consistently in future cases because it's a lot more fair. Uh, Rather than giving one result to one plaintiff or defendant, and a different result to a different plaintiff or defendant when there's not a real meaningful distinction between the two cases. I will tell you courts generally do try to follow precedent. You hear a lot about courts legislating from the bench and at the higher levels, sometimes that happens, but the higher levels also consider a lot more cases of first impression, meaning cases that haven't that, that haven't really had a definitive statement made, for example, by the Supreme Court, or where there is a particular, you know, aberration in the facts. It's a, there may be a principle you could apply, but in a particular case, the facts really uh, make that unjust or in some way violate a, a constitutional principle or something. I'm telling you that particularly at the trial level, the courts try to follow precedent. They don't want to be overturned on appeal, and that's what they're asking for if they, uh, if they apply uh, the law inconsistent with a prior court of appeals or Supreme Court opinion. Uh, so we look when we're deciding whether to bring a case in litigation, we look very, very carefully, particularly at the appellate court opinions on any given subject uh, to see, to get an idea of how the law might be applied in our particular case. And if we see that it's been applied in a way that's contrary to uh, what our client would like, is there a meaningful distinction we can make between the facts of our situation and the facts of the case in which that legal principle was handed down? And can we make a principled distinction uh, for the court that might be persuasive? I can tell you as an attorney that our job, particularly as an appellate attorney, and I can, as I've said, I've, I've, uh, I've filed a lot of appeals uh, and worked, well, worked on both sides of a lot of different appeals. And your job is to apply general principles to specific facts and try to do it in a way that is coherent and consistent. Uh, And so you have to be able to show the court the easiest path to rule in your favor. Now, sometimes lawyers enjoy making really creative arguments. I mean, I'm one of those too, you know. How could this particular principle of law be extended? Uh, You know, what analogies could we use and things like that to make this particular principle of law fit our case? But I'm telling you also that you should really only be as creative as you have to be to make the argument for your client. You want to give the judge comfort that he or she is not going to be overturned on appeal. If you're at the appellate level, uh, you want to make sure that the judges uh, are going to not get overturned by a higher court 
or that uh, they're going to create a new precedent that's completely out of harmony with what they've decided in the past and take unnecessary public criticism. You want to give them the shortest path between point A and point B that you can. That means only being as creative as you have to be uh, in, in the arguments you make. I will also say that the law only really has meaning when it's applied to specific facts and in specific circumstances. In the Federalist Papers, uh, Federalist number 37, James Madison, who was the father of the American Constitution, said this. He said, all new laws though penned with the greatest technical skill and passed on the fullest and most mature deliberation, are considered as more or less obscure and equivocal until their meaning be liquidated and ascertained by a series of particular discussions and adjudications. What he's saying uh, in plain English is you can create a law with the most mature deliberation and with great technical skill in the language. And you can have fully considered all of the policy implications of it when you're writing and passing it. But until you apply that law to specific facts in specific cases, it almost has no meaning. And by saying that, I'm not arguing for a living constitutionalist view. I'm not saying that the law or the constitution can mean literally anything we want it to mean. What I am saying is that you don't really know what it's going to mean until you go through the discipline and the challenge of trying to faithfully apply the words of the law or the constitution to a specific set of facts that may not have been anticipated by those who wrote that law. And Madison continues, besides the obscurity arising from the complexity of objects, in other words, there may be complex and even conflicting policy objectives that different legislators were trying to get at in passing the law. Besides the obscurity arising from the complexity of objects and the imperfection of the human faculties, the medium through which conceptions of men are conveyed to each other adds a fresh embarrassment. What he's talking about is the, by the medium of which conceptions are conveyed, he's talking about language, about the English language in this case. And he says the use of words is to express ideas. And he's saying that the meaning of words is particularly imprecise. He says, again, this is still James Madison and still Federalist 37, no language is so copious as to supply words and phrases for every complex idea or so correct as not to include many equivocally denoting different ideas. So he's saying language is imprecise and how you define words matters a lot. And words are susceptible to different definitions. <clears throat> So he's saying no law or constitution is perfect, is perfectly 
expressive of particular ideas. He even says that using the English language, God cannot express himself perfectly. <laughs> Listen to this. This unavoidably, unavoidable inaccuracy must be greater or less according to the complexity and novelty of the objects defined. When the Almighty himself condescends to address mankind in their own language, and he's talking about in the Bible, his meaning, luminous as it must be, is rendered dim and doubtful by the cloudy medium through which it is communicated. So he's saying, God knows what he wants to say, but human language is so uh, imprecise and difficult that the luminous ideas, the light which God wants to convey to us is rendered dim and doubtful because the medium through which God must express it to us is cloudy. So, that is what makes the job of an appellate judge so hard. Because even the ones that are really trying to be faithful to the original intent, and that is what I believe a good judge will do, is to first look to the text and see if the interpretations given by the attorneys arguing before you is a plausible one. Is it is it as good as any other possible reading of those words? And then where there is ambiguity and uncertainty in the words themselves, we may look to other materials that tell us what was the legislature getting at? What were their objects? Now, uh, in a separate letter, James Madison once said that if the sense in which the Constitution was accepted and ratified by the nation is not the guide to expounding it, there can be no security for a faithful exercise of its powers. And by faithful, he means faithful to the limits placed on power in the Constitution. Uh, not allowing government officials to become tyrants. So these are the principles upon which uh, I believe good judges will judge. And we could go into that a lot more, and in the future we will do a podcast or two on uh, rules of construction and interpretation and what makes a, a great appellate judge. Uh, for purposes of this podcast, I just want to, to touch on that and suggest that the reason it is so important, that appeals are so important, is because they chart the future direction of the law. And generally the principles articulated in one appeal, which are then applied in a different set of facts, uh, will add to the story, so to speak, will add meaning and you know, will resolve certain questions presented by that particular case so that how we understand a particular provision in the statute or the Constitution uh, is going to become deeper and richer over time.
Now, I don't mean, again, that that means the Constitution or the law can mean literally anything. The power that a judge has, the legitimate power, is to explain what it means in the context of the facts of a particular case and try to make that consistent with the way it's been applied in the past. I'll give you a little example of how this might uh, might look. Um, the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And we also know that in the post-Civil War amendments, uh, most of the Bill of Rights was applied to the states. So you might as well say the state legislature shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Well, the question has been posed in a number of Supreme Court cases, United States Supreme Court cases, whether the free exercise of religion allows an exception to laws that are generally applicable uh, on the basis of free exercise. In other words, there was a particular uh, case called Oregon Employment Division versus Smith, where the Supreme Court took up the question of whether the Native American church's sacramental use of peyote uh, was, uh, it, which was an illegal substance in Oregon, had an exception to the anti-drug laws for use just during religious services. Now, previously in Wisconsin versus Yoder, uh, a religious freedom exemption was given to the mandatory school attendance laws for the Amish because their way of life uh, and their religious belief was that you go to a uh, uh, religious education in the Amish community and that you only needed a, you know, enough reading to read the Bible and enough math to take care of your money and a few things like that. But they, they wanted their kids to be able to go to their school and their educational, uh, you know, their educational program. And the United States Supreme Court found that that was grounds for an exception to the generally applicable compulsory school attendance laws uh, because of the Amish's religious belief. Now, in the peyote case, they decided the other way. They decided that, no, you can't say I refuse to follow the law because it's against my religion unless that law was specifically targeted to persecute your religious belief. Well, that case, the Smith case, uh, changed the standard of review. It changed the way that law applied, uh, although it did not explicitly overrule Wisconsin versus Yoder, the case of the Amish uh, school children. Uh, it applied the, the amendment differently, and it has put free exercise of religion jurisprudence in disarray for all the years since 
since then, and that was decided, I believe, before I started law school uh, back in the mid-90s. So anyway, that, that gives you an idea of, of what a big impact uh, the decisions of a court of appeals or a Supreme Court can have. In that case, it affects what the constitutional rights of a particular person are going to be. Incidentally, I believe the Smith Court got it wrong. I believe that uh, the meaning of the First Amendment free exercise clause is that uh, you, and this is set forth in another essay by James Madison called The Memorial and Remonstrance. You might Google it. But he basically says that you can't be held uh, to a standard of obedience to the civil law without being able to reserve your loyalty to God because God is your higher loyalty and your greater sovereign. And so you, you can only submit to civil society with a reservation of your loyalty to God, which means you get an exception uh, to laws of general applicability um, based on religious freedom. Now, of course, there are limits to that, even uh, even in, you know, the most perfect world you can imagine, uh, I can't say because of my religious freedom that your property rights in your home do not allow, you know, do not allow me to enter your home and say your home is now my holy shrine and my freedom of religion allows me to come in here and force my will on you. It doesn't allow me to use you as my human sacrifice if that's part of my religion. So, there has been a test articulated by the Supreme Court in with, uh, Wisconsin versus Yoder and other cases that did uh, grant an exception uh, for religious freedom that said where there is a compelling governmental interest and the legislative means to further that interest or protect that interest is the least restrictive to religious freedom possible, then you can you can take away someone's religious freedom. And, you know, one example of that might be if I said, you know, your, un, your uh, newborn baby is my human sacrifice. Well, no, there's a compelling state interest in protecting the lives of others. And so you can't, you can't merely um, claim, you know, that your rights allow you to harm someone else. And, Anyway, you can kind of get a flavor from what I'm saying uh, of how important and how powerful appellate judges are in being able to articulate and interpret the law. And uh, when you hear uh, when you hear about cases like the one of Officer Chauvin for the murder case. Uh, involving the death of George Floyd, and you hear about an appeal that's going to happen. I want you to think not only about um, how does that affect uh, Derek Chauvin, uh, but also how does, how does any appeal and the opinion written in that appeal affect the state of the law going forward? Uh, the Supreme Court and the, the circuit courts of appeal are the guardians of our national constitution. And although they have a difficult job, 
although language is inherently inaccurate and imprecise and vague, uh, a good judge, a great appellate judge, will always approach it with the methodology of first trying to determine what the words mean and second, where the words are ambiguous, find a meaning that can be supported by those words and also by the reasons, the objects, which the legislative body or the people, if we're talking about the Constitution, the objects that the people or the legislature were trying to achieve by enacting a particular provision. All right, so I hope that's given you a little bit more education on what an appeal is and why it's important and why you should pay attention to it. Uh, I'm a civil litigator and a civil appellate attorney. I, I haven't done a lot of criminal law. I have uh, uh, been a special prosecutor on a few civil or on a few criminal appeals, but uh, I've done a lot of civil appellate work. And I'm telling you, these appellate judges have tremendous power in interpreting the law, and we need them to be faithful to the original purposes of the Constitution or the original purposes of the legislative body when they're interpreting statutes. And, uh, and that has tremendous implications for the protection of our liberty. Our appellate judges are the guardians of the Constitution. And so I hope, uh, I hope you'll pay attention to that and, and take it seriously. I thank you for listening. And I want to say again that if you love liberty, you're in the right place. We'll talk to you next time.